Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, we are an eager people, um, whether we know it or not. We have needs and you have uh, generous grace. So this morning we ask that as we approach you, Submit ourselves to your word. You, uh, through our ears, open our eyes to see who you are, to lead us to a response of salvation, but also uh, the responsibility of walking out that salvation in fear and trembling. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to gather together. And we pray that you're honored in our hearing, in our praying, in our confessing, in our singing, and in our fellowship this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So there's a style of interviewing uh, that's often used on daytime TV or late night talk shows, and it's called man-on-the-street interviews. And it's really difficult to understand. You just go and talk to a man on the street with a camera and a microphone. And oftentimes they use this as like a humor bit. Uh, they'll go and they'll say, hey, did you, what did you think of the score of the game last night when there is no game? And what you see on the internet is people talking about that game as if they were there watching it and how they're one of the cool people too. And it's quickly easy to see that this man on the street idea of interviewing shows that regardless of how much we know, we're often eager to talk and to fill in the blanks with what we think we ought to know. And that provides a unique consideration for us this morning of if you were to walk around Missoula, if you were to go to your workplace or your dorm and ask people, man on the street style, who is Jesus? What kind of answers would you get? I want, uh, I'm I'm not a gifted evangelist and so God is very diligent of shoehorning evangelism into my life when I least seem willing to do it. And so we had a broken pipe at our house and a plumber came, and I had one thing on my mind, and it was things of the world, like stop the leaking pipe. And he wanted to talk about my job, and it led to this time where I'm like, God, you want me to share the gospel, don't you? And he's like, yeah, I'm making this as easy as it possibly can. And so, um, so I went ahead and I, I talked to him, and he came up with a new thing where despite all of the secular and religious objective history that Jesus of Nazareth was a man who existed, uh, he simply said that Jesus was not a real person at all, that there's no historical evidence that Josephus made up everything and that uh, I was bonkers for even believing in a historic Jesus. If you asked a Muslim, they would say that Jesus was certainly a prophet of God, but not the son of God. A Mormon would call Jesus the son of God, but they would not admit that he is God, And any non-religious individual, unless he's my plumber, would certainly say that Jesus was a historical figure who was a social revolutionary, a good teacher, or maybe just an all-around good figurehead for some movement of loving one another. And even as Christians, even if we took a poll in this church, perhaps your description of Jesus would vary. In 2022, um, there's a study that went out that gave confessing Christians the opportunity to categorize their top three descriptors of Jesus. And in order, this is how Christians talked about him. They called him the Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah, Lord, Healer, Shepherd, Friend, Mediator, Lover, Liberator, Disruptor, Brother, and Son. A man on the street understanding of Jesus will yield all sorts of answers, varying in forms of truthfulness and falsity. But in the journalism world, this sort of man-on-the-street interviewing has a place. 
And it's permissible to do and encouraged to do when there's this event that's quickly happening and you have no access to eyewitnesses or experts and you're just asking people, what have you experienced? But when the experts show up, that style of interviewing quickly becomes outdated because we see there's really not much truth to be gleaned here. But now truth has come and we must listen. In the Gospel of Luke, today the expert shows up. Luke's narrative and Jesus' teaching are going to reveal to us who Jesus is according to how Jesus understands himself. You can ask around, you could Google, you could pick up a book. You could do all sorts of things to answer that question, who is Jesus? But the most important place we can go to is Jesus himself and God's word given to us. And in this text, we see Jesus accept and identify himself as two titles, the Son of Man and the Son of David. So what do these two titles mean? Well, their significance is going to become clear to us in two contrasting stories in this uh, passage. Jesus will clearly define the Son of Man to his disciples, but the significance of that is going to be hidden from their sight. And then as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, there's a blind man who can't see anything who is the first to clearly see and recognize Jesus as the son of David. And these stories reveal to us three ways in which we ourselves, three kind of perspectives of reality, perspectives of truth that we must have in order to understand Jesus clearly. And this kind of makes up our main point today, that Jesus is clearly understood in three ways. We see that in our text today, it's according to scripture, it's on the cross, and that's by faith. All three of these witnesses, so to speak, are necessary for us to understand the two titles that we'll look at. That is Jesus as the suffering son of man. That's going to be in verses 31 through 34. And then Jesus as the restorative son of David. That's going to be verses 35 through 43. And that's the roadmap for us this morning. And the overall roadmap of the gospel of Luke is very much like a roadmap. Luke is organizing his gospel in a geographic way. The gospel starts in Jerusalem with a barren womb, and it ends in Jerusalem with an empty tomb. But in between, Jesus is coming from the north and moving towards the south. That means the whole movement of his book is going from from northern Galilee to the cross in Jerusalem. And as Jesus gets nearer and nearer to Jerusalem, Luke's storytelling pace slows down. And we see today as he approaches Jericho, one of the last major cities he'll encounter before he enters Jerusalem. We're not sure how long Jesus was in Jericho, but we're going to spend three weeks together in Jericho at this important pit stop. Because what's actually happening in these scenes surrounding this town is Jesus is preparing us and preparing his disciples for how they are to understand Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. What does it mean when Jesus entered into the holy city, the city of David? And we know this is his purpose because that's how Luke opens up today in verse 31. He says this, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And so here we encounter our first point this morning as Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this is the first point that is Jesus as the suffering Son of Man. And in these few short verses, there are three things that are helpful for us to pick out. And we're going to see first the desire of Jesus, the dilemma of expectations, and then the dumbfoundedness 
of the disciples. And so first, we see the desire of Jesus right here in verse 31 that we were just looking at. Jesus preparing them for something intentionally. I remember when I was first convinced that I was going to marry Sarah, I told her in the spring of that year, I said, you know I'm going to propose to you later this summer. And her initial response was, please don't. Um, But through my constant, persistent widowing, right, calling back to Johnny's sermon, uh, uh, I was preparing her. I was calling her to think seriously of like, this is where we're going. This is the significance of it. If we are doing this well, then let's look at it through Jesus calls us to look at it. And guys, she said yes. So that was good news for me. But this here, this is the third time in the book of Luke where Jesus is to his disciples explicitly telling them what is going to happen in Jerusalem, preparing him for his death. He's saying, you know I'm going to die, right? And up until this point, they don't even have enough awareness to say, please don't. They're just like, I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. And why is he doing this? And these are important questions to answer because it shows us the heart of Jesus. He wants his disciples to be prepared for what is coming. Jesus is not into bait and switch discipleship. He's not selling you a false bill of goods and then leaving you to figure out the rest as to what it looks like. He wants you to be aware of what is coming, of what the shape of the cross looks like in your life, so that when you can no longer understand with clarity what is going on, you can understand in clarity what Christ has already prepared you to encounter. That's what the cross shows us. And he shows that to us daily, that we ought to frame our reality through the reality of the cross, that sometimes when things seem the most difficult, God is setting up the most good. When things seem the most dark, God is accomplishing the most light. And what's the tool he's using to prepare his disciples to understand him in this way? How does he want us to understand who he is and the purpose of his life? Well, we see that in verse 31. It's through scripture. As he's referencing the Old Testament prophets, In the book of Luke, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man 25 times. It's his favorite way to speak of himself. But he did this in using this title, not merely because he wanted the disciples to take him at his word, but that they wanted, uh, Jesus wanted his disciples to take God at his word in the Old Testament. That who he was according to scripture was the only way they can understand who he was in the flesh. He wanted his disciples to understand him according to how he connected to and fulfilled the prophets of the Old Testament, as he was the long-prophesied Son of Man. And so, too, Jesus assumes that if we are to understand him, if you are to understand him, you can do all the things you want to do in your life to gain understanding, but to understand him as he wants to be understood is to understand him through the whole of Scripture. Jesus is not some intrusion or plan B in God's program of redemption. Jesus was the plan all along. This spring, when we get to Luke chapter 24, Jesus is going to impress this even more clearly on us. But if we want to understand Jesus as he understood himself, we need to read God's word in the same way Jesus did, which is to read the entire story through the lens of how a faithful God redeems an unfaithful people through the work of his faithful son, the son of man. And while the disciples are still going to be shocked and confused at everything that's going to happen in Jerusalem, Jesus right here in saying this, he's like, you read the book, right? 
You should know what's happening. I've never seen the movie Titanic, but I know what happens. Why? Because it's titled Titanic, right? It ends poorly. And Jesus is saying, you should know this. You've read the Old Testament, don't you? Don't you know what's going to happen? Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants you to know him, and he wants you to know him by looking at his word. All of it, from Genesis to Revelation. Do you have a Jesus-sized Bible? We can learn a lot reading books by faithful and godly men and women and by hearing sermons and coming to church. But if we want to know Jesus, that is Jesus as he wants to be known, we need to have a habit of being able to read and encounter him in his word, of having a pattern of faithful Bible reading interpreted with Christ at the center. And so I encourage you, we have three Bible studies that are about to be going on at the church. A Wednesday night, there's a men's one on Sunday morning, and there's a women's one. Join one of those. There's all sorts of Bible studies happening just organically throughout the church. We want to help you do that. If you're looking for a resource in how to see Jesus at the center of the Bible, I'll commend to you, um, back in the Ephesians 4.12 bookstore, there's a book called According to Plan by Graham Goldsworthy, who tracks the plan of God through Jesus Christ through all Scripture. There's another great book called Understanding God's Big Story by Vaughn Roberts. And actually, some of the literature that does that best is God's Big Picture Story Bible that's out there on that shelf written by David Helm, which dumbs it down for idiots like us um, and shows us the theme of God's redemption through all of Scripture. We cannot understand Jesus apart from Scripture, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament itself. He is the Old Testament's Son of Man. And Jesus wants us to see that because understanding that prepares us for the cross. Now, it prepares us with the second thing we see here, the dilemma of expectations. He is the son of man. He wants to be seen as that, but this presents a certain dilemma because the primary passage a Jew would have thought about if they were thinking about the Old Testament was Daniel chapter 7, where the son of man is revealed on high while Israel is in captivity. Days are dark. And here is this bright beam of hope that describes the son of man saying this in Daniel seven fourteen. It says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, right? This is while they're in captivity. And so here's the promise of a restored kingdom, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. You'll no longer be serving Nebuchadnezzar you'll be serving the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He speaks to exiles who just were brought to Babylon because Jerusalem was destroyed. Jesus, or the Son of Man that Jesus is talking about here is equated in the Jewish mind to an undefeatable and eternal kingdom. Therefore, the expectation as Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, the city that was sacked and destroyed, as the Son of Man, is one of sweet victory. On September 2nd, 1945, General Douglas MacArthur rode into Tokyo Bay on the USS Missouri to accept the peace treaty from the Japanese. And what the Jews would have expected is not unlike that meeting. It was with great fanfare and victory. One author described it this way, said that he arrived in a blaze of glory, riding a white charger down the gangplank of the USS Missouri. And he stepped ashore to the strains of the star-spangled banner with the flag framing him from behind. That's what they thought this son of man was coming to do. To ride into Jerusalem with onward Christian soldiers blaring in the background, riding his war horse, 
But look at the text. That's not the picture Jesus paints, is it? Look at verse 32. What does Jesus say of the Son of Man? He says he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And so in Greek, that word Gentiles is just the word ethnos. It's just ethnicity. It's nations. The one who's supposed to come and rule over the nations is going to be handed over to the nations. What else does it say? He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Can you imagine how shocking this would be? Can you imagine if Captain America showed up in some Marvel movie sporting the hammer and sickle? That's the equivalent of this shock right here. That he has been conquered and defeated. That the one who is to rule over is going to be ruled. The one who was to vindicate is himself going to be villainized. The one who is going to be acknowledged as king was going to be flogged and killed. How does Jesus want you to understand him as the suffering son of man? Well, in the three explicit predictions Jesus gives in the book of Luke, this is the full picture. This is what he's saying the Old Testament paints. And I put it up on the screen. These are my words, just piecing it together from Luke. In the son of man... All that was written by the prophets will be accomplished. The Son of Man will suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And so there's full rejection by the Jewish religious elite. But more than that, now we turn to the secular sphere and this generation. And he will be delivered into the hands of men, even Gentile men. And he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged, after which he will be killed." It seems like Daniel may have left that chapter out of his vision in Daniel chapter 7. But Jesus is saying that all of this, all of this was part of the Son of Man's story in the Old Testament. So is it in the Old Testament? Yeah. It's in Leviticus chapter 17, in the Day of Atonement, where a sacrifice was to be made on account of the sins of the people. It's in Ezekiel chapter 4, where Ezekiel, who is called the Son of Man is told to lay on his side as a prophetic metaphor, a metaphor of what? Well, Ezekiel 4, 5 says this. God says to him, so long shall you bear the punishment for the house of Israel. It is in Isaiah 53 where the Lord's servant is pierced for our transgressions. We cannot escape Jesus's role as the suffering son of God. And Jesus is preparing you to understand that. But... All the preparations of God find its end in the promise of God. All these things will happen, but he will rise again. The hope of Israel rises from the dead. There is one thing for certain. This world wages war against your Savior. Whatever it is, your physical health, your financial well-being, your grades, your cars, your family. And one day death will swallow up every last one of those, which is why it pays to worship the one God who swallowed up death himself. One God who took the worst the world had to offer and conquered it victoriously. Jesus will suffer because we are the ones who deserve to suffer. He will suffer on account of our sins as the suffering son of man. But Jesus will rise because there's a redemption yet to win. He's going to punch death in the teeth. And that gives us the promise that those who hope in this suffering son of man, though we may suffer, 
we will rise one day as Jesus rose. And this spells out, this dilemma spells out, is spelled out incredibly clear by Jesus here. He's, he's, he's baby talking to his disciples. And what does Luke show us? He shows us their dumbfoundedness. This is the third thing in our first point, the dumbfoundedness of the disciples. Now notice how Luke said this. Imagine being one of the disciples, kind of reading, like here's the thing, they know their buddy Luke, who's kind of traveling around with Paul. He's, he's producing this book, and they're like, hey, I'm probably going to get to be in the book, right? And so they're, they're reading this with bated anticipation, and then Luke says this, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Like, really, you had to say it three times? Like, couldn't you just say, like, hey, they, they knew more later? <laughs> but he's intentionally leaning into their absolute dumbfoundedness in order to understand what Jesus just baby-talked to them. And there's two things we could see that are important in this statement here. First, we see that the disciples are no dummies. When Jesus spoke of rising from the dead, they didn't blindly and naturally assume that that was a normal thing to happen. They were not, there's often this tone that people have when talking about people who are around in the Bible's time that, well, yeah, these guys were idiots. There's no science. So someone came and did a miracle, then these dumb animals just believed whatever supernatural magic was there. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery, that we think that if we were in their same shoes because of our enlightenment and our understanding of science, they would have been like, oh, well, certainly he's not going to rise from the dead. No, these guys are shocked at this claim. They're shocked at what Jesus is saying. They're not believing it because it's unbelievable. But it is believable if this man is the son of God. And if he's going to die to appease the wrath of God and then be raised to life by the glory of God in order to save the people of God. This is consistent not with man, but it is consistent with God. But secondly, we can also understand the significance here of seeing the cross instead of merely hearing of the cross. Everything was laid out very clearly by the disciples, but they didn't get it. And not only did they not understand, but you look at the text there, it says that it was hidden from them. What does that mean? Jesus here saying it to us. We're all on this side of the cross. We know no one's out shocked when we read this. And I'm like, guys, guess what? It was the cross. We're like, I didn't see that one coming. But he said that to them and they, they missed it. Despite Jesus' desire and attempt to do it. <clears throat> and so if God was simultaneously hiding it, and Jesus is simultaneously speaking it, then are the two persons, two of the people inside the Trinity warring against each other? Does God have a desire to conceal and Jesus has a desire to reveal and we'll just see who wins at the end? No, instead Jesus is explaining by words as the son of God what God the Father is preparing them to understand only after they see with their own eyes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in all of its glory. And this is the same point which is true for us today. We cannot understand Jesus unless we see with clarity the cross. God says in the book of Habakkuk, he says, I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. We cannot merely tell and be told of the gospel. We must see the cross as our cross. We must be given eyes to see the beauty of it. The cross is the moment of clarity that defines the rest of your life. Not being something merely in word, not being something merely for others, but something that you see for yourself. 
One of my professors in seminary said that we have the grace of place in redemptive history. We live this side of the cross. We can see it in all of its historic glory, but do you see it through the eyes of faith? Do you see that this cross for the suffering son of man had to be your cross? That his death had to be your death? That his resurrection must be your resurrection? Until you see that, you will be as dumbfounded as the disciples. And yet Jesus is showing us that we cannot understand him apart from the cross. Since the 20th century, there's been a movement inside of liberal uh, churches and theologies to remove cross from an understanding of the gospel. That the cross was more of just a tragic ending that signified an angry, wrathful God and a problem of sin that doesn't really exist. But Jesus, if we take Jesus at his words, says we cannot understand him apart from the cross. Jesus is the son of man who has come to deal with our sins, but this shows us the problem. Our hearts don't naturally see him. So how do we get the eyes of faith? How are we those who can have it spelled out clearly and come away seeing instead of sitting in silence? Now this is where we turn just randomly by happen chance to a story of a blind man who learns to see (laughs) Isn't it cool how God pieces together scripture? And now we begin to understand the exact significance of what's about to happen. Here's where we learn what the eyes of faith really look like. This is our second point this morning, the restorative son of David. The restorative son of David. The disciples in hearing were blind. And now we're gonna look at a man who is blind and healed by what he saw even though his eyes didn't work. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that there were perhaps two blind men who came out, and it could be that that was a different healing, or it could be that Mark and Luke, uh, who only record one blind man, uh, just focus on one particular blind man because he went on to be well-known in the church. And I'm persuaded of that. Luke, or Mark actually tells us his name. His name is Blind Bartimaeus because he alliterates because he too was a Baptist. And so, uh, so the, probably just drawing mention to this man who people knew in the church, he was well-known, and so they're focusing on this. But regardless of that, Luke tells us this. He says, as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired, what this meant. In verse 37, the crowds responded to him and they said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. That's what it means. He's passing by. Luke tells us what happens next. Hearing this, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, one thing that we need to point out is that the crowds were absolutely 100% perfectly accurate in what they said. It was Jesus of Nazareth. That was true. It was a profoundly historical and accurate description of who Jesus was. But notice how the blind man saw Jesus as more than just Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't return the praise and say, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Did you notice what he said? He said, Jesus... Son of David, have mercy on me. You see, it is one thing to describe Jesus through the lens of our worldly eyes. It's another thing to see Jesus in light of who he is according to the word of God. Any legitimate intellectual person can acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth, his preaching, 
perhaps even his miracles. But that is not sufficient to see Jesus for who he is. But this blind man saw. Jesus was not merely understood in relationship to his place, but in using the title Son of David, he's understanding Jesus in relation to his purpose. Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus is the king who's come to rule faithfully over God's people. Jesus is the ruler God had long awaited to send to restore all things. And here we see again that Jesus' favorite book on Christology, an understanding of himself, was the Old Testament. He was not only the son of man, he was the son of David. So who is the son of David? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, the great king of Israel, sought to build God a house. And God inverted the plan. He said, I don't have any needs. I'm God. You don't need to do anything for me. But because I'm God, I'm going to do something for you. And he says, David, I will build you a house. And look at what God promised David. And pay attention with uh, Luke 18 echoing in our minds here to chapter, 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may be able to dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, declares the Lord, that you, or to you, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so here, what do we see already? Uh, Well, we'll continue reading here because there's some more eternality here that's important. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul who was before you, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God was going to make the throne of David an eternal kingdom. And so now we're piecing together two things. There is an eternal kingdom in Daniel chapter 7. And how do we get there? Well, in 2 Samuel 7, we see by what means? By the eternal king. By the one who comes from the throne of David, who reigns forever and ever. Now, if you remember that short time ago, like, a year and a half ago, when we opened the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, what does the angel tell to Mary when she is told uh, that she is going to have a child? He says this, He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, Jesus is the Son of David who would have been understood primarily as what your political hopes might be. That whoever gets put in office puts back in place everything that's gone wrong. 
Did they bring a sense of personal and individual flourishing by his reign? He was the restoring king. This too is all over scripture. In Jeremiah 23, the son of David is the shepherd who cares for the lost sheep of Israel. In Isaiah 16, the coming of the son of David symbolizes the end of oppression and destruction. In Jeremiah 30, it's the son of David who says, for I will restore your health to you and your wounds I will heal. Where the son of man came to establish the kingdom in power, the son of David came to care for his people by gathering the lost and the lame and healing them by his good rule. Jesus is the son of David and the son of man. And while that reality was lost on everyone, the one man who couldn't see anything saw it. He heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. He heard the things that he had been preaching. He heard the rumors of his miracle. And in this moment, everything the blind man heard led to what the blind man saw and what everyone else missed, that this man was no man. This Jesus is the son of David, the one who gives mercy, the one who restore and heal, the one who delights to give mercy. You see, it is possible to have a historic view of Jesus like the crowds, but not a theological view of Jesus like the blind man. But the blind man saw even before he was healed. His understanding of Jesus was so profound, so desperate, so crystal clear, that even when he was told to be quiet, like maybe when your kids are talking during the pastoral prayer, like we tell them to be quiet, and they take it as like a launching point to get louder, okay? And so they're like, hey, be quiet, don't make it weird. And he's like, I'm going to make it weird. And so he's yelling out to Jesus because he is so desperate for mercy. He went out that morning to beg for money, but by the end of the day, he's begging for mercy. Why? Because he knows who has come into town. He knew the significance of this man. And we read what happens. Verse 40 and 43. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So here is Jesus, the son of man, the son of David, the king of kings who has kingly things to do, the eternal ruler who has things of eternal significance to accomplish, slows his step and his cadence to the point of the cross to care for a blind beggar. This happens all the time in Luke. And I ask you, do you see the heart of your savior king? Do you see that what slows him is not the opposition, but his affection? His affection for those who have no standing, but for mercy. And he comes to the one, so here, here's the one who created the world. The one through him and to him and for him, all things. Everything is subjected to this ruling king. And do you notice what he did? He subjected himself to a blind beggar. This is the scandal 
of our Savior. He goes to a man with no money, no sight, and no position, and the eternal Son of God in the flesh, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the King of Kings, looks at this no one, and he says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Do you realize that Jesus Christ has taken on flesh, been lifted to the cross, buried in the grave, and ascended to heaven so that he might ask you, what do you want me to do for you? So how do you answer that question? What answer would you give? And it's very interesting here because Jesus has been showing, if you've been following along, his dissatisfaction with the Pharisees because they want Jesus to do all sorts of things. Great things, glorious things, wonderful things. And Jesus rebukes them. But now he actually asks this man, what do you, what do you want me to do for you? Why? What's the difference here? It's because this king sees and knows the hearts. The Pharisees, and perhaps our own answer to that question, betray our hearts and betray our hopes. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to do things for them so that they could get on with their grandiose vision of life, so that they could again be the ruling elites. Perhaps we might want Jesus to do things for us so that we can overcome whatever hurdles we think are most severe and resume living the life we know we ought to live, to get back with our plans, to have the shackles removed so that we can run freely and do what we ought to do. But this man asked for one simple thing. He asked for sight. And the beautiful thing is in asking for sight, Jesus is going to show us what this man already saw. Because this man's cry for mercy assumes, everything mercy assumes, that there is something wrong in him that must be made up for by this son of David. While he doesn't understand the fullness of who Jesus is, he knows that he has a lack and only Jesus can fill it. It's true. He didn't actually know Right? I, I told this to our staff, like if this man came to a member interview, he would fail. <laughs> be like, hey, so uh, what do you think the gospel is? I don't know, I was blind and now I see. And we'd be like, mm, there's no mention of sin there. <laughs> he didn't say, I need my sins to be atoned for on the cross. I need my unbelieving heart to be overcome by your mercy. He said he needed his sight. But while he didn't yet fully understand the reality of his true problem, the problem of sin, like many of us, when we first come to faith in Jesus Christ, he clearly understood what was most important, and that is the solution. The man, Jesus Christ, the son of David. You see, you could have told this man that his greatest problem in that moment was his long toenails, and he probably would have given Jesus the toenail clipper. He's like, whatever the problem is, I need Jesus to fix it. I can't do it. That's what faith is. Faith has a keen understanding of sin, but faith, more importantly, goes to Jesus to realize that whatever our problem is, we cannot fix it. But the son of David can. Jesus, not his sight, was the object of the blind man's hope because that's exactly what Jesus affirms. What did he say? He says, your faith has made you well. Faith, faith in what? Well, he's already rebuked the Pharisees' faith, which is in the kingdom of comfort. 
But here, he affirms this faith because the object of faith was not his sight. It was the man who healed it. It was Jesus himself. This man got his sight because Jesus already was all that he could see. And this is confirmed all the more because what does he do when Jesus heals him? He follows him, glorifying God. The only thing that happened in this miracle is that this man was able to see with his eyes what already captivated his heart. And here's how we get the eyes of faith. We come to Jesus for mercy. And when Jesus gives us mercy, our eyes open to see him and follow him. No one, no one who comes to Jesus for mercy leaves without seeing him. He delights to open eyes to all who come to him. Receiving the mercy of God is receiving the ability to see Jesus by faith. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's the salvation we need. That's how we get the kingdom eternal through the king that puts things back in place. This is who the son of David is, God's mercy to sinners. Look at how Zechariah, the prophet, Old Testament, Zechariah speaks about this and see Jesus fly off the page. See this man from Jericho assumed here. He says this, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is Zechariah 12. We're gonna be looking at Zechariah 12, 10 um, and then we're gonna skip and look at verses 13 or chapter 13, verse 11. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Do you hear Luke 18 there? So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. There's your suffering son of man. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David. There's your son of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. Here on the outskirts of Jericho to a blind man begging for mercy, the fountain bubbled. And what trickled there in the ditch of Jericho would flow with great force a few days later from Golgotha, where the blood of Jesus flows to all those who are spiritually blind. It is to those who come to Jesus with exclusive and desperate faith that Jesus stoops in beautiful humility to ask you, what do you want me to do for you? Dear church, we need our sight. Sight to see the king. Sight to see the plan of God unfold. Sight to be captivated by the man of mercy. He gives us faith to see when we come because this is what God does. When we see him for who he is, by mercy, we then begin to walk with him in glorious beauty. It is to those who come and see that are those who now walk and sing. And this walk isn't easy. It doesn't mean there's no trials or hurdles, but it's easy in that we always have, regardless of how difficult life is, of how dark the season, of how convoluted what around us is, we see the man who goes before us. We see the object of our faith, and we know that he gives mercy.
So for those who have yet to see, come and ask for mercy. You do not need this Jesus, son of Nazareth. You do not need a new book or a new outlook. You do not need a new home or even the restored physical eye. You need the mercy of Jesus who gives to those who ask. So come, come and ask. And to those who have seen, let's get up. Let's follow him and glorify God. For we have new life. We are converted for his glory. My wife and I have started doing a morning prayer with our family to help us transition from the chaos of the morning to the chaos of the day. It's just nice to have some transition there. And uh, we do this prayer to just kind of help us, to remind us of the very thing we see in this text. And so this morning, I'm going to close in prayer by praying that for us. And then we will conclude our worship this morning. And so would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, today is another day you have given us. Give us eyes that see your glory, ears that hear your word, mouths that praise your name, hearts that repent, hands that serve, guts that try hard things, and feet that follow you wherever you go. And so, Lord Jesus, because we have seen your glory as the son of man and the son of David, accomplish those things in us. From what we see with our eyes, may it change every aspect of our bodies. May we follow him joyfully, not because we know where we're going, but because he knows where we're going. He has told us the shape of this life and he has told us that at the end of all of it, await for us a resurrection from the dead. And how do we know it is ours? Because we see that it is already his. That he has defeated death and he has risen and ascended and that he offers as the true great king healing to those who come to his fountain. And that as he lives in us through the Holy Spirit, he seals us for a kingdom where one day we will return with him for an everlasting and untouchable life in glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.